0: Thank you for downloading the IEA podcast. We originally published this episode onto the IEA's YouTube channel, IEA London. We've stripped the audio and turned it into a podcast so you can listen to it on the move. Enjoy.
1: It's important to specify what the argument in the book The Road to Serfdom is really directed against, because this is an area where there's a great deal of, of sort of misinterpretation. It's not an argument against all forms of government intervention. It's not an argument against all forms of government regulation. And it's also not an argument against the welfare state. The primary argument of the book is an attack on comprehensive socio-economic planning.
0: Um, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm James Forda. I'm Academic and Research Director here at the Institute for Economic Affairs. Um, Thank you all for coming. Going to discuss as you see the road to serfdom was hayek right um, well we'll soon find out um the road to serfdom's a book of particular interest around here of course because it's the one that um set anthony fisher on the road to uh, what turned out to be creating the iea hayek himself said he was writing it um, unable to um actually fight nazism he wanted to fight the the sources of it or the causes mm-hmm. of it and he argued, reflecting on Germany and Austria, about the that the um, the attempt at planning, the attempt at control of the economy, had fatally undermined democratic institutions, um, and led to Nazism. So it's it's a rejection of a an explanation of Nazism that would be um, just historically contingent, or. Um, a a character flaw of the german people which was one of the things knocking around Um, but it was finds its source in the well-intentioned attempts of the planners to um, make things work better and of course crucially it was a warning to um especially the british but to the other to the democracies not to go down that road and he thought we were um so um we're discussing was that right and what further reflections are there on, it, on those themes for today. Fortunately, my role is only as question master. I have a team of experts here to um, help with the substance of the matter. Far-end Mark Pennington, who's Professor at King's College London, um, has written Robust Political Economy, a highly recommended book on classical liberalism. Describes himself as being interested in the relationship of philosophy, politics and economics, but that's much too modest. Hmm. Um, He's, he's, in the proper Hayekian way, he writes philosophy, politics and economics as if they really were one subject, not three subjects that have to be connected to each other. And currently writing on, or about to write on, Foucault and liberal political economy. Sherelle Jacobs is a journalist who um, writes for The um, Telegraph. Um, She has done freelance work for The Guardian, so this is going to be um, (laughs) a very very balanced discussion coming up. Um, And um, she has a major theme, a concern with um, the the thinking of the British political classes being um, outmoded and not recognising the, uh, the the importance of developments in science and technology in the modern world. I imagine we'll hear quite a lot about that. And Christian Nemitz, on my immediate left, is Head of Political Economy at the IEA. He's written some tremendous things on um, the uh, measurement um, and handling of poverty and on the um, health service, got himself in trouble with Angela Rayner, um for well, uh, actually that's that's too modest as well he got us all in trouble with that <laughs> <laughs> um, not for the last time <laughs> um um for, for drawing some obvious inferences from well obvious when you look at the data right the, the to the effect that the national health service is all right but it's actually not the the beating performer that we were promised all those years ago and he's written a terrific book on um, socialism the failed idea that never dies which is uh, a great analysis of what was said about socialist experiments before they were implemented and what was said about them after they've manifestly failed in many cases by exactly the same people not telling exactly the same story however as it turns out um so there's the team of people, the wise people, who will be able to answer these questions. We are, as you can probably tell from click-click that's going on here, recording um, this meeting. There's another camera up there, which is recording mostly the backs of people's heads, but of course um, the front of us. Um, we will turn off the recording, we'll turn off the cameras when we get to past the main dis- We finish the main discussion and open up the meeting to um, questions from the floor. Um, So, um, the Hayek's um, book, greatly, um, seemingly anyway, greatly praised by Keynes, as many people know, morally and philosophically, I'm in almost complete agreement with you, said Keynes. Um, That might not be the whole of the story. first question, I think, is to what was the message? I, you know, gave about a sentence on it and... um, Was Hayek right um, to have this fear of planning, undermining all the economic uh, roots of democracy being undermined by planning? Um, And what about the thought that strong enough liberal institutions protect us from it, uh, the dangers he was describing? May I start at the far end? Okay, thank you very much.
1: Well, I think my argument is that Hayek was essentially right. Um, But in order to appreciate that, it's important to specify what the argument in the book The Road to Serfdom is really directed against. Because this is an area where there's a great deal of of sort of misinterpretation. Um, In many ways, The Road to Serfdom is Hayek's most interventionist book. So it's not an argument against all forms of government intervention. It's not an argument against all forms of government regulation. And it's also not an argument against the welfare state, or at least not certain configurations of a welfare state. The primary argument of the book is an attack on comprehensive socioeconomic planning. It's partly an economic attack on that, that model, but also it's a kind of political economic analysis which claims that Attempts to introduce comprehensive socioeconomic planning are not compatible with democracy. OK, so that's the core argument. Now, there's a weaker version of the argument which does apply to highly interventionist political economies and to certain forms of welfare state institution, I think. But it's important to keep <coughs> this separation um, in, in, in mind. So what's the basic argument and why do I think it's, it's right? Well, part of the argument builds on Hayek's economic theory and his economic critique of planning, so the explanation of why comprehensive economic planning won't work. And that argument basically goes like this. So the fundamental economic problem of society is that there isn't agreement about the basic economic facts of life. And by that, I mean what should be produced, in what quantities, at what price, who should be involved in the production process. There isn't agreement on any of those basic facts. We deal with the lack of agreement in a capitalist market system through the competitive process. It's an impersonal mechanism that allows divergent views of the economic environment to be tested against one another and for the outcomes of that process to be revealed through profit and loss accounting. If you try to replace that process, with central planning. It will not work in the sense that it can't draw on the same gene pool of ideas that a capitalist system would do. But also it generates these secondary effects which end up destroying democratic institutions. And the argument there is as follows. If there isn't agreement on what we should produce, in what quantities and how, then what are you going to do if you abolish the market system? if you have something like democratic central planning? Well, the argument is, essentially, nobody's going to be able to decide on what should be in the plan. Okay? So if you can't decide what should be produced in any particular area, the idea that you can decide for the whole of society all of the different things that should be produced is absurd. So you're going to be in a situation if you don't have a market economy, either of having chaos, or having a situation where someone comes along and says, We need to bring order out of this chaos. Someone who's willing to impose a particular design in the face of this chaos. Now, this kind of argument is is revealed in what I think is one of the most compelling chapters of the book, which is called, Why the Worst Get on Top. So in a situation where people don't agree about things, (coughs) and somebody's gonna have to impose a vision, the people who are willing to do this aren't gonna be particularly nice people there's going to be a kind of selection effect that operates, which means that the people who are willing to use coercion, to squelch opposition, to enforce a particular view, these are going to be a kind of people who rise to the top in a situation where markets, liberal institutions, pluralism in the economic sense, have actually been abolished in in favour of something called democratic planning. So the argument is, the attempt to replace the market system wholesale inevitably leads to some kind of despotism. Now, what is the evidence for that claim? Well, it seems to me there's pretty strong evidence in favour of that claim. There are no societies which have moved towards comprehensive socio-economic planning that have democratic institutions. Now, that doesn't mean that capitalism guarantees democracy, because it doesn't. There are many capitalist systems which are dictatorships, but there are no comprehensively planned, socialist societies that are democracies. None. None. Anywhere. That seems to me incontrovertible support for the Hayek argument, and it's a warning that people need to be continually reminded of. But there are two, if you like, slightly weaker forms of the argument, which I think are relevant to some of the predicaments that we face today. So, I said that Hayek's argument is not against all forms of government intervention, and it's important to keep that in mind. It isn't. He's not against the provision of public goods. He's not against government action, where there are what economists would consider to be externalities of various kinds, in this particular publication. What he does warn against is a form of piecemeal interventionism, which, over time, can morph into something that looks like a planned economy with all of the consequences of that. So an example of this type of process, which I think we have at the moment in the, in, in the UK, uh, would be around something like housing. If you introduce something like rent controls, okay, rent control on its own is not going to lead you on a road to serfdom. It's not going to destroy the whole market system. But it might set in train a kind of pattern of events that have got certain similarities with that. So if you introduce rent controls, you're going to get the predictable shortage of housing uh, by not allowing the market to operate. And then politicians are basically faced with a choice, which is do they reintroduce the market, allow the market to operate, or do they start to introduce more and more controls? Okay, which can end up leading towards a situation where you have basically no housing market left. Now, if you look at what's happening in the UK situation at the moment around housing, where we don't only have Um, the possibility of something like rent control, but a dysfunctional land-use planning system that constricts the supply of housing. You can see how that could lead to a situation where there are demands for more and more controls to deal with a problem that is actually brought about by the initial controls. Now, it's important to emphasise the argument is not an inevitability claim. It's a claim that there is always a possibility of this control being there, but politicians always have the choice of moving back towards a market system if an understanding of how such a system is connected to human liberty is actually prevalent within the sort of general pattern of public opinion. Finally, a similar case can be made about Hayek's views on the welfare state. Sometimes people say that his argument in The Road to Serfdom is an attack on the welfare state. It isn't. He supports some forms of income redistribution. What he's opposed to is the idea that you can move beyond having some kind of safety net system or a system that provides some basic opportunities to people to something that guarantees specific types of outcome, okay? a specific distribution of income, a, spati- a particular sort of pattern of status for people, if you like. Because that kind of system basically ends up with the very kind of problems you have with full-blown central planning, that there isn't any agreement between people about who should get what, beyond perhaps everyone agreeing that we don't want people sleeping on the street, we want a basic level of access to education or healthcare, or these other kinds of things. So on all those grounds, I think Hayek's argument is, is correct. If we look at most of the European social democracies, where they have welfare states, they're not actually, even though many of them say it, committed to the delivery of what people call social justice. Okay? There are all kinds of ad hoc redistributive schemes that attempt to patch things up here and there, but they're not actually trying to deliver something like comprehensive equality. If they ever tried to do so, then we would be on the road to serfdom. Thank
0: you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) um, As a journalist, I have two aims in my professional life. The first is to understand the world, or try to, And the second is to then try and tell a story about the world in a way that as many people as possible that I can reach can then make sense of. I'm probably a bit more interested than most journalists in intellectual thinkers and trying to tap them to help me with my craft so I was delighted to be invited here today to talk about the relevance of Hayek. Hayek was a great thinker he was a complex thinker and he actually became more mellow, intriguing and interesting and labyrinthine with the years, like a sort of like a fine wine. That said, Hayek was not the thinker who I turned to during the last great crisis of freedom to afflict us, um, namely the pandemic. In those dark days, I sought answers and solitude from a number of philosophers, uh, Carl Schmitt, Giorgio Agamben, even Michel Foucault and Jürgen Habermas to understand the shrinking of the precious life world in the face of the expansion of an ever more invasive and dehumanizing system, and the paradox of a so-called liberal government free to override all democratic norms and rule of law in a state of emergency. The road to serfdom, with its somewhat limited focus on the perils of central planning and the welfare state was not one of my intellectual companions during that time. Now that we're out of the pandemic and wrestling with stagnation and monopolistic big tech and a computer age that has thus far failed to unleash a fourth industrial revolution, <coughs> I have found Kayak more useful um, but not comprehensive in terms of having all of the answers. Um, just to throw out another, a few other places where I found inspiration, the post-Schumpeterian economists of Germany who are espousing a school of thought that places technological (laughs) innovation at the core of economic growth rather than merely market efficiency or perfect competition. And also that other forgotten member of the Mont Pelerin Society, Henry Simons, who claimed that the great enemy of democracy is monopoly in all its forms. Um, Before we get into a proper discussion, I want to flag two reasons why Hayek, for all his strengths, did, have not, for me, provided a comprehensive framework for thinking about the great challenges currently facing freedom. To refresh, Hayek's thesis was basically that the welfare state had replaced full-blown command planning as the chief enemy of liberty. Welfare states, rich large, were a kind of cold socialism that would eventually threaten to lead to hot socialism, full-blown command planning and total government control over every facet of economic life. I think while the welfare state is certainly aggravating the West's current woes by propping up a cheap wage economy and pressuring governments to ta- raise taxes even when growth is poor, it's clearly um, the welfare state is not helping. I think it is more difficult to argue that the welfare is the root cause of all our problems. Moreover. We have seen that it is not a socialistic, command and control model, but a Blairite model which advocates a relatively hands-off approach to economics with a view to tapping the spoils in order to bankroll an ever-increasing welfare state that has collapsed in the face of multiple shocks. Furthermore, (coughs) the, the rise of the monopoly may prove to be equally, if not more important than the expansion of the welfare state to explaining the West's current predicament. This is a hard problem, monopolies. Um, Hayek tried but did not really get to grips um, with the issue, and in the era of big tech and their failure to innovate since the invention of the smartphone, that's becoming a bit of a shortcoming. I think the other shortcoming with Hayek is that in his obsession (coughs) with the dichotomy between the natural, virtuous, divine, organic market and the artificial, unwieldy, corrupted and flawed state, the Christian power paradigm that characterises Western society and ultimately explains our system's characteristic strengths and its weaknesses, (coughs) slipped through Hayek's fingers. Hayek, who was ambivalent towards religion, did not fully appreciate the extent to which the liberal democratic capitalist system is a continuation of the Christian paradigm. To quote the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben, who is, in contrast, more expert on this subject, the Trinity has functioned as the hidden ontological (coughs) paradigm of modern governance. This has huge implications for freedom, because in the liberal democratic model, the the dichotomous rivalry is not necessarily between market and state, but between the liberal management of society according to self imposed limits, whether that's in the political realm, which deliberately, in theory, cuts itself at the knees through the division of powers, or the economic realm, which in theory at least devotes itself to decentralised, dynamism and competition, and On the other hand, total unbridled sovereign power. The liberal democratic capitalist paradigm is one in which popular sovereignty is like God. It retains omnipotent power that transcends rule of law. It reserves the right to exercise this power with brute force in a state of emergency, even if it does not manifest that power through meddling in everyday affairs. That old saying, the king reigns, but he does not rule. Um, Through his decided framework, I think that Hayek simply can't see that the mortal threat to the economy is not merely from state meddling, but more importantly, sovereign supremacy. And Hayek, interestingly, seemed not so much threatened by sovereignty as dismissive of it, calling it a nonsense. Um, The other thing that I think Hayek, through his approach, could not quite see is that far from assuming a hard distinction between state and the economy, the Western Christianized tradition tends to a collapsing of the two realms into each other, a kind of totalizing divine bureaucratic managerialism. Um, as Agamben points out, in the conce- out, the concept of the economy is traceable back to the Greek oikonomia, which pertained to the management of the household. The economy and state, in my a humble opinion I hope I don't get <laughs> sent out for being so subversive should we understand as both sides of the same coin in a way <coughs> presenting to us rival methods of totalizing world management. Um, so I think what Hayek perhaps couldn't quite see is that markets could be then vulnerable to monopolism and formation of market bureaucracies. How capitalism might, in the advertising age, bring in a new kind of hyper consumerized tyranny, a world in which money is purely self-referential and anything can be commodified. Um, in short, I think that it's time to actually look beyond Hayek. He was truly a brilliant thinker, but as a Cold War thinker, he was a product of his time. Times have changed, um, new threats are emerging, or old threats are becoming more evident than ever and coming into sharp relief. Um, and, I think that um, there are other people, and I've quoted Giorgio Regabin extensively, that perhaps we could learn from. And, and in Yeah. Thank you, that's it.
0: <laughs> Christian.
3: Yes, thank what you, James. You um, Hayek is a hugely significant figure in the history of mm-hmm. this institute. You could say that he is an indirect founding father, a godfather of the institute. Without him, we would probably not be here right now. And um, it's partly for that reason uh, that he is held in extremely high regard here, but also uh, he is quoted in pretty much every major IEA publication. Um, So, therefore, uh, criticising Hayek is as close as you can get to blasphemy here. (laughs) (laughs) Closest thing we have to implicit blasphemy laws. But nonetheless, uh, I think it is fair to say that he did get a few things wrong in the road to serfdom. He didn't present uh, the road to serfdom as a hypothetical possibility, a warning of something that might happen, but he did say that Britain was already on the road to serfdom. He does say that uh, for him, as an Austrian, living in 1940s Britain was like reliving the same period in history twice, meaning uh, he felt reminded of the Austria of his uh, younger years. And he saw Britain as uh, being on the course of repeating what had happened in the German-speaking part of Europe, Germany and Austria, and that that was the trajectory, that that is what would happen without a course correction. And that course correction didn't happen. Uh, The next three and a half decades after the publication of the book, Britain went further uh, down what he would have considered the road to serfdom and that was not a good idea, that's uh, the the post-pro consensus policies did lead to uh, relative Mm -hmm. economic decline and the squandering of the potential that Britain had in, in that period. But it wasn't a road to serve them. Uh, Britain in 1979 was not in any way less of a liberal democracy than, say, West Germany or Switzerland or or the United States. So uh, there is not enough of a distinction between economic policies that you shouldn't adopt because they're just a bad idea, they're going to make you poorer, and economic policies that risk totalitarianism. Uh, now, of course, this is all easy to say 80 years later, uh, sitting on a panel in 2023. Uh, it's, it's easy to say, well, somebody who wrote this 80 years ago got a few things wrong. Easy to say, but I think he also gets a few things about his time wrong. Specifically, even though what's most remembered about The Road to Serfdom is it's often read as a critique of Soviet socialism, which of course it was, uh, but it's not just that. He's also focusing uh, uh, on National Socialism for obvious reasons. Uh, 1944, last, last year of the war, and that is of course the system that he had to escape from. Uh, and his interpretation there is that, uh, where well, he says National Socialism wasn't some freak event, some aberration, but a culmination of a number of long-term trends of things that uh, were set in motion many years before. Uh, How many years, it's not quite clear. At one point he says uh, 20, 25 years. Uh, Somewhere else in the book he talks about half a century. So you would... The implication either way would be that uh, the historians who try to analyze the downfall of the Weimar Republic and who concentrate on events of the early thirties, the implication would be that they were all wasting their time. Because if the Hayekian analysis is correct then by the early 30s it would already be too late. That would be the equivalent of trying to study a plane crash by looking at what happens in the seconds before the plane hits the ground rather than going back further in time and uh, look trying to find the moment when the pilot lost control or the engine failed. Uh, but I don't think that's correct. Uh, I, I don't think uh, you do have to go back to Kaiser Wilhelm and Bismarck to uh, understand the downfall of the Weimar Republic. I think the mainstream historians who concentrate on the early 30s get it right, and that the rise of National Socialism could still have been prevented until pretty much five minutes before Hitler was appointed Chancellor. Uh, Not everything is about big structural economic forces. Sometimes mundane things like human errors of judgment uh, also play a role, and in particular his economic interpretation doesn't quite stack up. He says that, uh, as Mark explained, his argument is that uh, when you try to introduce economic planning in a democracy, you create chaos because democracies are not set up for that task. Uh, uh, Economic planning requires agreement, uh, and that's a kind of agreement that we just don't have. So therefore, the argument is you create chaos, and then a Hitler-like figure comes along and says, Don't worry, I can sort this out, you just need to give me absolute power. And the electorate then says, well, let's give this chap a chance. He seems to know what he's talking about and what could go wrong anyway. But
2: but the thing is that
3: that isn't what happened. Um, The last, firstly, the economic chaos of the early 30s wasn't a result of too much planning specifically in Germany or Austria. uh, It was a result of a global economic crisis. And the last Weimar era coalition actually broke up because they couldn't agree on what to do about unemployment insurance. So there was this huge surge in, uh, in unemployment. Um, unemployment insurance was no longer self financing, and they couldn't agree on what to do. Should, it, should we raise contributions? Should we cut benefits? Now, unemployment insurance that's something that, uh, as Mark said, Hyatt was not uh, against. The welfare state or this book uh, is certainly not an anti-welfare state book. So unemployment insurance is something he would have approved of. And that is what caused the collapse of the last uh, democratic Weimar coalition. And uh, and and then it's more mundane things that happened like uh, the, the decision to have a general election in 1932, uh, which messed up the parliamentary uh, arithmetic. None of that, uh, had to happen and none of this is the result of big structural forces that go back half a century earlier these were really uh, decisions that people took at the time and well got clearly wrong Um, but nonetheless there are more things that he was right about than what he was wrong about Uh, specifically the connection between the argument that you cannot have political freedom individual freedom in a comprehensively planned economy that was absolutely spot on uh, and uh, it aged particularly well if we compare it to, uh, to Animal Farm, the, uh, the book that came out uh, I think a year after The Road to Serfdom, uh, because there the contrast is that it would be difficult to imagine a sequel to Animal Farm. You would have to have several farms where the same revolution happens again and again, and you always get one group of animals uh, ending up as the new ruling class. Whereas in Hayek's case, he would have had no trouble at all explaining why it was not just the Soviet Union that ended up that way. It was then also the whole of Central and Eastern Europe. It would then be Cuba, uh, China, Vietnam, and um, Mozambique and Angola, and nowadays Venezuela. So uh, in that regard, uh, the, the main message of the road serfdom aged extremely well, and it's an argument that unfortunately still hasn't been widely understood. Uh, we co-published a survey a few months ago with uh, the Fraser Institute in Canada, a survey of uh, millennial attitudes uh, or, or younger people's attitudes to socialism, capitalism, economic systems. Uh, it turns out a third of British millennials believe that communism would be the ideal system for the country. Uh, Of course, these people would, if you confronted them with the record of communist regimes in practice, they would all say, ah, well, that wasn't true communism, Uh, that kind of cliche, we laugh about it, but that's, uh, because it is a cliche, uh, but it is also the mainstream opinion, unironically believed by millions of people. And uh, there, the Hayekian argument uh, has clearly not been widely understood, and that's uh, a, a task that we still have today. Um,
0: fantastic. I've seen Mark taking notes, uh, but we, we, we must move on. We've got uh, other topics to talk about. We might be able to um, come back to um, rebuttals. What about... What do I think we, we hear the, the contrast between the piecemeal interventions and the full-blown socialism, um, despite what Christian's opinion poll says, um, the articulation of arguments for full-blown um, socialisms, m- much in the background, so the question is, are we as uh, liberal minded people um, in a more difficult position than Hayek making the case for the liberals because we don't have the 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 Soviet system as it were to as as being the thing with which to draw the contrast? Um, does this make it more difficult, and what would be the appropriate way of going about it? Uh, I'd like to go in the other direction, or start mm. with Christian, if he's still got voice.
3: <laughs> uh. Pretty much. Um, yeah, it, it depends on who we're arguing with. Uh, I would make different arguments for different audiences. If, uh, if I'm talking to someone who may use the term socialism, but I know who I know is a social democrat, somebody who doesn't believe in, central, in, in comprehensive central planning, I'd make very different arguments compared to, uh, say if I'm invited uh, to university where it's it's usually a fully socialist audience. Um, Uh, uh. In that context, I I would um, make Hayekian arguments along the road to serfdom lines for more piecemeal interventions. I would not make the claim that this sets us on the road towards uh, fascism or, or, or Soviet type communism. Uh, there, I would make the, the more moderate claim that this is just a bad idea, but don't do it.
1: Um, yeah, well, I, I think there are dangers that they're not, they're not considered in, in Hayek's book, but they're actually, I very much agree with some of the things that Sherelle was saying, that there are thinkers, so I'm, I'm writing a book on Michel Foucault at the moment, um, actually looking at some of the parallels between some of Hayek's ideas and and some of his. And he talks about something called biopower, which is very relevant in the context of the pandemic, where you have something like a public health crisis or some population crisis, where basically something like an emergency narrative is used to justify the extension of controls over people. And it seems to me that with this kind of what he would consider to be a technology of government, a technology of controlling people, or manipulating people, is actually quite hard to attack because these kind of situations, in milder but also in stronger form, are being wheeled out in multiple different areas. You know, so we're told that there's an obesity crisis uh, which needs some kind of drastic action. Uh, We're told that there's an alcohol crisis or other kinds of uh, crises that require some form of control. And none of these on their own are roads to serfdom. But when you add them all up, they create a sense in which people don't believe actually they can manage their own lives because we're in an emergency or something like it. And this to me was one of the reasons why. And I don't have a strong view on what the response to the pandemic should have been. But one thing that I did find remarkable was how rapidly people gave in to these kind of controls, there was no resistance against them, and in a way that wasn't surprising because there's so many other areas where in a smaller scale we're constantly being told we're in an emergency or we're in a crisis and therefore we need some kind of control, okay. that people were sort of acclimatised to it, um, and sustainable development, global warming, all of these narratives are out there that can sort of unleash this kind of dynamic. And they're hard to rebut because there isn't this other vehicle out there, like the Soviet system, whatever, to to contrast um, our system with. So I think that is a very difficult challenge and I don't have any answers to it. Problem.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that you've said. To go back to the question about how do you deal with this sort of incrementalism, I think that... At the end of the day, the right needs to become a bit more confident about the specific instances in which the state can be useful. Whether it's providing infrastructure, or you know, putting money towards R&D that otherwise private enterprise is not incentivized to uh, invest in, while being able to say no, that's a bad idea. That's a bad idea. You know, don't try and pick winners. That kind of thing. So I think that. Um, it just needs to be a little bit more nuanced, but confident at the same time. So a confident kind of nuance, um, and I think that you, while, admittedly, yes, there isn't this Soviet system to bash. I think that the left has shifted from espousing you know, this rival socialist dream to actually rejecting progress altogether. And I think that this rising discourse that the Enlightenment values were racist, um, that they were evil, that they unleashed centuries of ecological degradation, um, needs to be tackled. It needs to be confronted. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's a bit sort of a mystery as to why we're not doing that. Maybe it's because the Tory party is full of NIMBYs, or maybe it's because I don't know. We can't quite explain why it is that we've stopped economically progressing. Why that stagnation is happening. Whether it's this kind of sort of um, lag moment before you know the computer age really kicks in. Um, but I think we need a new story of progress, and it's not there right now. Um, and that's something that I'm thinking about a lot. You know, every time I come to my column, it's like, how do we, how do we tell the story? How do we not tip it, you know, I can be very pessimistic, how do we not tip into this sort of constant pessimism?
0: Mm. Very good. So the, um, another characteristic of our dilemmas today is <coughs> there's, we, not just the uh, economic interventionism, which is so much consent Hike, but the uh, challenges to the open society arising from regulation of communication or um the the push to control language that we're hearing um also in universities um but all over the place um now this is a, a, a i think i'm right say this is a different kind of challenge um is that now as big a threat than socialism in 1944 or a greater threat or how should we respond to that Well should we Mark's desperate next time. I think
1: think parts of that are as threatening. So the example that I would give would be um, diversity, inclusion and equity uh, initiatives. Not that I have a problem with inclusion or any of those sorts of things, but the particular model of this that is now in many universities but is also rippling out into other Uh, dimensions is not an equality of opportunity model and there's problems with the notion of equality of opportunity as well, whether you can actually have equality of opportunity in a free society, but actually it's it's an outcomes equality model that is being favoured. It is the very kind of thing that Hayek would have been concerned about that. What you're aiming for is a very particular distribution between groups and it's got to be that the distribution of all the jobs or all the status is in (coughs) precise accord with the proportion of whatever identity group you're referring to um, is within the general population. Um, So questions to do with historical differences, cultural differences, all of these kinds of things um, are put down to some form of discrimination or some form of um, ism, if you like, and explained to be the product of systemic power, which then justifies bureaucrats You are going to supervise, almost like mini dictators within a particular sphere, that they get the right outcome. And this is is very, very concerning, I think. It it is an example of a miniature form of this road to serfdom dynamic actually operating in the cultural sphere.
2: Yeah, so I mean, there are things that are quite perturbing happening in the public sphere. I think about um, the Worker Protection Bill, which is basically a Mandini Equality Act, but I'm going to play devil's advocate here and also say that this is happening in the private realm in ways that's actually quite disturbing. And if we're talking about having, you know, rational um, communication <coughs> in society, and, you know, we see with the internet, it's called a balkanization of communication, people in there. Um, bubbles not really interacting um, but also with that integration with the algorithms so and they are really dictating the uh, um, the realm in which people are communicating with each other and you have these algorithms which are biased towards vi- giving virality to pe- a small group of people which ho- who hold very intense opinions about a particular subject and are combating this other very small group of people <coughs> who have a rival view um, and You know, um, these ranking systems are not, I mean, so the truth does not necessarily correspond to, you know, what these algorithms will um, rank. So an opinion that doesn't correspond closely to the truth, that does correspond to the truth, does not necessarily incite intense feeling. Um, So it just gets buried. Um, So that does actually really worry me. Um, and I think the other thing that's really interesting about the diversity stuff is just how much it is kind of thriving through this mechanism of consumerization. So, um, it, I mean, it started off as you know you'd have advertising wanting to target minority groups. It started off with McDonald's in the nineteen seventies. They started targeting African Americans because they realized oh, African Americans um, want to come to McDonald's, um, and but what we're also seeing is actually this kind of not laggard, monopolistic economy, was a shareholder model where you've had this decoupling between management and ownership and you have these corporations which aren't actually subject to very much competition. Huge growth of PR, PR, I mean, PR? HR departments, executive boards with huge licence to actually pursue a lot of virtuous, um, uh, you know, Virtuous, um, yeah, yeah, virtue signalling kind of, um, um, rather than pursuing profits or, um, you know, concentrating what they can do to innovate. So there's, there's an interesting dynamic happening um, in the private realm as
1: well. James, you mind if I just yeah, briefly comment yes. on that? So I, I agree with that, Sherelle, but I think a lot of the reason for that is that many of these activities take place in the shadow of the possibility of regulation. So a lot of companies engage in this act, action because they think if they don't, yeah. they will be directly regulated. Now, you then do have, um, I think, what you might call rent-seeking dynamics oper- operating, where once <laughs> companies actually start to sort of get into bed with some of these sorts of ideas, they recognise that they can use the regulation to limit competition. Mm-hmm. So I think the way you're speaking about this, it's, you, you're making it sound as though, the monopolization or cartelization tendencies are just out there in the market. I'm not convinced that they are. I think they're there, but they're actually much more to do with the regulatory framework, which is sort of there in the uh, the background, that a lot of these companies are adopting these kind of things because they think it's a way to either avoid direct regulation in some cases, so they pander to various groups that want these kind of proposals, or um, they actually use it as an opportunity to... Argue for regulation because they know the regulation will end up crippling, say, smaller competitors or whatever. Maybe, maybe yeah. the, the case.
2: Yeah, I think there's there's also this. I mean, the beauty of diversity is it means that you don't have to talk about you know groupthink and conformism within you know these large large workplaces as well. Um, it just yeah, I mean, it's just a smokescreen really. Um, but no, I, I take on board what you're saying. So it's very interesting.
0: Yeah. Christian, also the free speech aspects of this. It's not only the... the Yeah,
3: I mean, uh, cancel culture is definitely a real thing, a a real threat. Mm -hmm. Woke progressivism in general is an ideology that's incompatible with liberty, because once you start from the presumption that some groups are uh, naturally privileged, oppressor groups, uh, and other groups are oppressed and you just assert that and never have to prove why that supposedly is, then you just naturally, um, that moves you towards a form of social engineering. You can't then say, oh, oh, well, I have these opinions, but you can nonetheless do whatever you like because you want to correct uh, historic, perceived historic injustices or level the playing field as mm-hmm. you then see it. And it would be very strange for someone with that mindset to then also be a hands-off liberal. The problem, of is that it is um, a bit of a tricky one for liberals because it mostly does come from, uh, well, it mostly happens in the social sphere rather than being imposed by laws. Uh, It is mostly private companies, uh, universities, uh, no platforming speakers. And uh, I don't think it is just the preemptive, uh, the attempt to um, to prevent regulation because that uh, would require a degree of coordination. Surely uh, the lawmaker would say, okay, if uh, nine out of 10 companies do this voluntarily, then we won't regulate. But if it's just two of them doing it, then we will regulate. Then you would have to a situation where uh, it would be a prisoner's dilemma. Everyone would say, okay, you can have your diversity, uh, equity, inclusion department. We don't want to do it here. So it, I think it is, a, a more for a form of elite group think, and um uh, yeah uh, and and that's just difficult to get out of and difficult for liberals to engage with because we don't want to uh move to a situation where you somehow try to force freedom of speech on private mm-hmm. organizations because we wouldn't have a problem with it if say a catholic university said uh, a militantly atheist speaker isn't allowed to speak here. We would then say that's a private organisation they have to have right. In principle, a woke university saying we don't want a non-woke speaker uh, is not fundamentally different and therefore it's uh, not a natural territory for us.
0: So we end up with a very big dilemma, but you must must tell us something about what to do about it. Uh, (laughs) So we
3: we can let you off. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we've had this uh, argument here. I think liberals should engage in the culture war. We should... uh, For a long time, we've had this um, kind of smugness that we don't want to comment on what private organizations or private individuals do in their own personal sphere. We would say, uh, oh no, we don't do that. We just talk about the rules of the game. Uh, We're more like umpires. We're more like referees. We talk about uh, whether something is within the rules or not. Uh, we don't comment on what the players should do, as long as it's within the rules. We don't express a preference for which team should win. And engaging in the culture war would mean climbing down from that comfortable meta level and uh, being judgmental, uh, <coughs> telling private institutions, yes, okay, you have a right to fire this employee because they tweeted something unwoke, but you shouldn't do it, and uh, we will name and shame you for doing it.
2: I just want to say one thing, just picking up on it. I think the best way to combat the cultural is just to really try and hone this story of progress that we want to tell. Um, I, one thing that I find interesting about the, the uh, critical race theory is that if you trace it back, it goes back to a guy called Derek Bell, an African-American um, scholar. And Derek Bell was actually quite interesting. He was an existentialist. And he actually, counterintuitively, he came from the view that the system couldn't be changed. And so he had this kind of it was this kind of heroic pessimism that you can't change the system, you can't change structural racism. So you just immerse yourself in this heroic, doomed mission to resist what cannot, ultimately be overcome. And at the end of the day, why one might empathize with that position it's a very futile one it's a very impotent one and if we're going to actually um you know combat that then it needs to be with a a belief that things can progress that you can change things for the better and i think that's the difference between what's going on with the culture war and the philosophy behind that if you go deep 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 to its root and how we can try and overcome it um, rather than sort of, you know, you're all idiots, um, which is tempting, but yeah. I mean, it's not how it's not how you win the argument, right? Ultimately.
0: Um, so the, the the final question, in fact, was these two people have started answering it, but prompt for Mark and come back to the the first two. I concerns how what do we do as Contemporary liberals to build support for opposition to these various forms of statism. At least two, I think, actually three sorts have been in the conversation. I,
1: I mean, I, I personally don't. I don't believe in wars um, of, of, of any of any kind, including culture wars. So I think I think you have to make the case for um, individual liberty, and I think you can do that without actually engaging in culture war as it's become understood. So the thing that I find most objectionable about a lot of um, what people call woke politics um, is actually that it erases the individual. So everybody is seen simply in terms of their membership in in groups. But many of the members of these groups don't agree with each other. Mm -hmm. You've actually got miniature roads to surf in that dynamic of a kind of strong personal group at the top, imprinting their vision of what the group wants on the other members of the group. There isn't a gay view or a black view or a female point of view or There are multiple perspectives, and these are actually erased by these kind of um, ideologies. So I think the way to deal with it is not to have a war as such, but to make the case for respect for individual dignity, for individual people. And I think that's an attractive vision that you can sell to the broader population without engaging in a war against these um, people who have a rather different view of, of our status as individual beings.
0: Christian?
3: Yeah. yeah, well, I would just say that in itself is engaging in the culture war. Uh, when, when you do that, uh, you are challenging <coughs> the presumptions of the woke progressive side. And uh, then you are already in a participant in the culture war. And, and that's a good thing. That's that's what we should be doing. Uh, but otherwise, it just, uh, again, depends on who we are talking to for the, the, the threat of socialism it's, it, it really is about. Um, it's still the old-school arguments that Hayek made uh, 80 years ago. They still haven't been widely understood, and that's something that we as liberals still have to do. And we should also, perhaps, uh, if people on, on, if our socialist opponents um, talk about their idea of a future socialist society in highly abstract terms, uh, and therefore dismiss all the real world evidence by saying, ah, well, these people didn't Meanwhile, they just had the wrong idea of socialism. It sometimes can make sense to just remind them of what people like the early Lenin, the early Mao, what they said, and and just show them, look, these people did not start out with the intention of creating a totalitarian hellhole. Their early writing didn't say, we want gulags and mass executions. Um, Their early writing is often very much like what a millennial socialist today would say. And um, just to confront them with that and say, well, what exactly is the difference here between uh, the early Lenin and you? This sounds like what you could read in any university society, that can be quite effective. And that's something that we should be doing.
2: Yeah, so um, I think that the way forward is, first of all, um, a in terms of economics, you know, a story of freedom which is perhaps quite nuanced but also confident. So just thinking a bit more about, okay, so how do we deal with the problem of monopolies? Um, Do we think that there is a role for the state in particular instances? You know, people are talking about advanced manufacturing. We see what America is doing. Do we ignore what they're doing? Do we try and emulate what they're doing? Do we try and do an improved version? and I think that we also need to think more about the state of exception um, in, in terms of freedom. Um, how do we define a state of emergency? And how do we make sure that a state of emergency does not go on longer than it should? Um, and it's quite hard, I think, to motivate people to talk about these things and think about these things once the emergency has passed. But <coughs> I think we can be fairly confident um, that you know the the last pandemic um you know there will be an, another pandemic sooner or later um and i think ultimately it's very important to try and hone this over- overarching story of freedom that's going to exhilarate people that's going to unite people because i think that's ultimately why we've tipped into this culture wars because there's no, there's no one thing that we can agree on right now. And you know, there's only, we only need to agree on one story in order for this to work. Um, and the problem is we don't have that one story that's uniting us. Um, you know, I'm fascinated with the fact that the last you know, utopia that we had was a dystopia, kind of this end of history narrative. So this lobotomized freedom where there would be no more left to debate or discover um and it's kind of it's very similar to to rome actually in augustus the end of history it's really fascinating and then after augustus you, you there's nothing there's no further for the roman civilization to go it can't it can't envisioned a future beyond what it's already achieved and i think that that's the problem that we have today um, but we need to get over it and i think the part of the problem is big tech is not really articulating a future which involves any of us Um, so we need to also grapple with that that's probably another session um but yeah it's just i mean i'm in the business of stories so i'm always going to say you know the story is the answer but i really believe that i really believe that
0: Um, brilliant we um we 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 promised you a audience participation session, we must move to that. But just before we do, I'd like to draw your attention to the fantastic way. We started four minutes late, actually. I'm not quite sure why. And do you notice the spontaneous order by which the, the pan- I didn't I didn't impose any rules about how long people would speak. I didn't declare any emergencies. I just let them speak. And exactly on time,
1: allowing for a slightly late start, um, they've, they've stopped. That's a magnificent performance.